You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. Each of those precious lives stolen too soon when evil attacked. Ground Zero in New York. I remember standing there the next day and looking at the building. I felt like I was looking through the gates of hell. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and President Biden wasn't at Ground Zero the next day. No one that was an elected official, maybe Rudy Giuliani was there the next day, but nobody from the federal government. The first people from the federal government that went to Ground Zero were the president, Senator Schumer, and then Senator Clinton, who wanted to, uh, who paid their respects and did the thing on the mound saying, we hear you and the world's going to hear you soon. That was the first visit to Ground Zero by an elected official. Now, uh, President Biden was giving a speech on the floor of the Senate the next day. And maybe he's calling that the gates of hell. I don't know. But he was not at Ground Zero, and I haven't been able to verify if he ever went to Ground Zero. I'm sure at some point he did. They probably had a group of senators that went at some point. But initially, it was only the senators from New York and um, President Bush. Initially, the first visit was September 14th because they were kind of busy on the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th. You know, the fact that the president... President Bush did not want to interfere with the work that needed to be done there. And that was the race against time to recover anybody. And the sad thing is they did not recover anyone alive out of the wreckage. No one was found. There was a lot of hope that there would be people that were found. But basically, because of the high heat, the intensity, the fire... And then the crushing blow of the building coming down. People were not recovered after those buildings collapsed. There were parts of people. The last count that I saw was around 1,100 bodies were actually identified. But those weren't even entire bodies in most cases. Now, you did have the case of the firefighters because they were kind of on the edge of things. You did have, so their bodies, some of their bodies were recovered. The uh, chaplain who died and was recovered, his body was recovered and brought out. There are a few bodies that were brought out, but they were not from people that were in the building at the time of the attack. And it is really shameful that President Biden would make a statement like that, even though I understand he tries to make these things up to be relatable to people. I understand why he does it, but this need he has to put himself in every situation is a narcissistic trait and a problem that we have. Okay, so uh, Sharon uh, wrote me yesterday because we had really, really worked hard to get Nikki Haley on today, and I don't think it's going to happen. 
And I'm very disappointed about that. But I understand she has a very busy schedule. She's got a lot of people she's on the news with. And I get that. We'll we'll have her soon. But Sharon said, I agree it's concerning that the Democrats are changing huge amounts of money on campaign fundraisers. This tells me something shady is going on. I also agree that we can't afford another four years of Biden. You have mentioned before Biden will not be the Democratic nominee. Are you still predicting this outcome? By the way, thank you so much for having Nikki Haley on tomorrow. I'm going to watch tomorrow's show. She already has my vote. What are the chances of Nikki Haley getting the nomination? So Nikki won't be on today. And she might. uh, Who knows? I've told him if anything opens up, we will take her call. Okay. But uh, we understand that she's very busy. I think the conventional wisdom is that. Trump is so far ahead that everybody should get out. That's the conventional wisdom. That's the Trump wisdom. That's what people want. What's got to happen for anybody, first of all, a single vote hasn't been cast, and we don't know anything yet. And it will be a long shot for anybody to beat President Trump in this primary. But the only way, the only way anybody is going to get some momentum to be able to beat President Trump or make it a two-person primary is to win one or two of the early primaries. Say Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Mike Pence or whoever wins Iowa and New Hampshire. Then going into South Carolina, it's going to be very difficult for the president to make the case that he is the only choice. The former president to make the case that he is the only choice. So I think it all depends on these early primaries and that's where they're spending most of their time and money. As far as Joe Biden, I still believe he will not be the nominee. He will not be the nominee for the Democrats because they have their they are worried about that. That's why they put their their convention so late next year. It's so that they can change out as late as they can. I think that they would prefer somebody like Gavin Newsom. I don't think they want Kamala Harris. I think Kamala Harris will put up a fight for that. That's why she's, you know, dancing around the country. We saw her dancing to the 50th anniversary of hip hop. I did not need to see that. And some things you can't unsee, which is really terrible. It's just like me. I can't dance anymore. Okay, I'm sure when I was like 25 and really nice looking and 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 live and I could I could move and I didn't have fake knees. I probably danced pretty well and looked pretty good dancing. I don't look good dancing anymore. I've seen videos of myself at all of my children's weddings. And even though I felt really good at the time, because as you know, I'm a celebratory drinker. Okay, I'm not a person that drinks on a regular basis, but at a happy occasion, like a wedding, I'm going to drink. And it's one of those things where you don't know if you've had one glass of wine or you've had five glasses of wine because people are happy and they're filling up your glass and you're happy and you're eating. And that's the way to me, if you're going to drink, it should be celebratory. And I'm a celebratory drinker. So, um, you know, other than that, I'm a two drink girl. If I go out to dinner, it's two drinks. If it's, if it's whatever, I'm a two drink girl, never more than two, uh, because I feel terrible if I have more than two and I don't sleep well. So I think it's all in moderation. I think everything in moderation is fine. But I have seen the videos of me dancing at my age and even at Kamala Harris's age. It's not pretty. Okay, it's not pretty. You just don't have the movement you used to have. Your clothes don't drape the way they did. Sorry, it just doesn't work. 
So Kamala Harris was at the 50th anniversary of um, hip-hop. Yesterday, her husband was in Shanksville. Um, she was, I believe, in um, D.C. at the Pentagon. And then I think Jill might have been in New York or somewhere else. I'll look up where she was. The president went to, President Biden went to Alaska and look, I kind of agree with Britt Hume that he was on country's business. That's why he couldn't be here. I think he should have been in Washington or New York for the anniversary. I think every president forever should be there. And people say, oh, well, we didn't do that for World War II and for um, Pearl Harbor. But we kind of did because we went to war and we won the war. And we now have a World War II mat- mat- memorial on the the mall that takes into consideration the entire sacrifice that happened during World War II. Plus, it's much more difficult. It kind of would have made more sense. And I know he probably couldn't do it because you think of the South Pacific as being so close, but it's not. It would have made more sense and more of an impact if he had actually gone to Pearl Harbor yesterday and kind of talked about Pearl Harbor and 9-11. But as you could see, he was exhausted. He says, I'm going to bed. He didn't say that in Alaska, but he said that in the Vietnam press conference. I think we've got the audio of that later. And um, if people aren't in a room trying to figure out how to get rid of Joe Biden, um, that's a problem because he is not competent to be president for a second term. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining me right now is Jeremy Beck from Numbers USA. And Jeremy, um, first of all, welcome to the program. Appreciate you being with me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. You know, I have said for three years and really starting on and off in the Obama administration, too, is that. We are really dealing with 21st century slavery uh, because we've got these cartels that are bringing people across the border. They're charging them, you know, amounts of money that might as well be, you know, millions of dollars to people that have nothing. They are running this sort of organized crime game where these people can never pay this money back. And they're either put into sex trafficking, labor trafficking, um, you know, any kind of other trafficking. They are indentured servants. They are slaves to these people. And nobody seems to care. Nobody seems to care that we have created a class of 21st century slavery in this country. Well, you're right. There's a huge overlap between modern slavery and um, and illegal migration. And we've seen exposés uh, in mainstream media. The New York Times did a huge series on child labor. And a lot of these cases are, are kids who are brought over here as minors or they come over here as minors. And they're paying off the debts of their family members, and they're put into child labor situations. That's just that's just one example. And, I mean, and it's as old others. as time. I mean, people have done that. For millennia, but we thought we grew out of that, and it feels like nobody cares. They just want to say the border's secure. I mean, just as recently as if last week, they the Biden administration has been saying the border's secure. So, what is the human cost of all of this? Well, I, I go back to your your first thing because I think it's important what you what you said there, which is that we haven't we haven't really grown out of that. We, we're we're seeing when we hear these explanations that say that you know this border crisis is actually good for America because we need 
who else is going to do these horrible jobs that nobody else wants to do? Well, that should be a, a cause for reflection on, on our part. Um, if the job is in America, one of the greatest countries in the world, it's not the greatest country in the world, but it's, but the, we've got jobs here, American jobs that are beneath Americans that we think, oh gosh, there's no way we would do that job at that wage under those working conditions. But it's totally fine to bring other people, desperate people from around the world to do those jobs for us at those horrible wages and horrible working conditions. I think, I think that's a moment for introspection for us all right there. And that you really put your finger on it. And the border is, is a mess. Uh, this is not a surprise. You don't need me to tell it, tell that to you. Um, there's a hearing in the House Homeland Security uh, this week, in fact, tomorrow, about the human cost. And this, both sides of the border. The last two years have seen the highest number of border deaths since the U.S. government started tracking such a thing. Um, more people have died crossing the border the past two years than under any other two-year period in our history since we've been tracking it. And that only counts the number of people who have died at the border. It doesn't count all the people who have died trying to get to the border. And they're coming from all over the world. And this is simply because the word has gotten out around the world that if you get to the border, you have a very good chance of being released into the country. And that is really where where we have a, a policy problem, where um, we have an abuse of the parole system. Secretary Mayorkas is using parole, which is meant to be, consider somebody who comes in on a tourist visa and they're supposed to leave, but they need an urgent medical emergency. They're paroled into the country so they can get their health taken care of, and then they go home. Well, what we're doing now is we're paroling people en masse, at the border, hundreds of thousands of people a year are being paroled into the United States, sometimes with work permits, sometimes not with work permits. And that is what is driving this, um, this huge wave of illegal immigration that we see today, which is now running twice the level of our legal immigration system. So we basically have two immigration systems right now. And One is the legal system created by Congress, and the other is the illegal system that has been executed by the executive branch. And we, can't, we must mention every time we talk about this that we legally immigrate roughly 1.1 million people a year. And that is more than the rest of the world combined. We are not anti-immigration in this country. And I will not take that label from people because, you know, my grandmother immigrated from, from Germany. I can pull the ship's registry from where she came through Ellis Island and she answered certain questions about whether she had a job, whether she had money. I love this one, whether she was an anarchist. You had to answer that question, too. But we had a system to where people were, were you know, accounted for. And right now what we have, to your point, is twice the legal immigration level for what, going on three years, coming into the country. So that's roughly, um, you know, three million a year. And and we have 330 million people, so we're talking 3 or 4% of the total population coming in in just a three-year period. That is something that can't be dealt with and uh, has to be dealt with. So two questions for you, and we're talking to Jeremy Beck from Numbers USA. The human cost, you know, we got fentanyl poisoning. We've got all this other stuff. We've got national security. We just, we just remembered the 9-11 um, uh, tragedy. And we know we have people that are on the terror watch list that we've caught and not let come in. But how many have come in? We don't know. Uh, and then how do we fix it, Jeremy? Because we're, we're in this place that we are right now. What do we do to fix it? 
Well, what what audacity to ask about the solutions here? Um, yeah, there there are there are there there are solutions, and um, and I'm glad we're getting around to it. The, the House passed a bill, HR two, that contains many provisions that would really would really solve the problem. There's no silver bullet. There's no one silver bullet, but. Um, uh, it includes parole reform, which which requires uh, the government to to use parole the way that it's intended. It closes some asylum loopholes. Most of what has started this this fire is uh, our cracks in our asylum system, where we know that most of the people are arriving, they're claiming asylum, which they have a right to do, but they are fraudulent asylum claims. And so we need to close that. We need to close that loophole. There's provisions such as remain in Mexico that was very, very effective during the Trump administration because it essentially says, yeah, you can claim asylum, but you're going to you're going to wait in, in Mexico or a contiguous third country like like Canada while you wait for your asylum claim to be heard. Now, people know that that if the whole goal is to get into the United States and they know that their claim is fraudulent, so they're just going to go home. And that is that is basically what happened is that uh, the, the the stream dried up so to speak, when that was in place. So it's got that. It's got mandatory E-Verify. You played a clip from Ron DeSantis earlier. Uh, his state, Florida, passed an E-Verify bill. Uh, that's the, the common sense system where right now it's illegal to hire somebody who is unauthorized to work in the United States, whether they're here legally or illegally. But we have no verification system. So it's a, sort of a don't ask, don't tell type situation. And... Um, E-Verify just gives people an automated uh, computer system to verify that their new hires are legally authorized to work in the United States. So it's got a bunch of provisions like that in it. And the fight right now is over funding, and this is where the power of the purse comes in. Um, right now, we're the, the con- Congress, House and Senate are in this big fight about whether or not they're going to fund the government, they're going to you know, spend the money. And the question is, are we going to give the Biden administration, all the money that it wants to continue to do what it is already doing at the border, or are we going to put some strings on that? And those strings need to be HR2, all of the provisions on the, in HR2, so that the funding is, is not just funding more parole abuse, more asylum abuse, but actually funding workable solutions like parole reform, asylum reform, remain in Mexico, E-Verify. Most of these things have had bipartisan history. Some of these asylum reforms were advocated by the Obama administration um, to close some of those loopholes. So these are not radical proposals that has history of bipartisan support. What we need right now is for Congress to really step up and, frankly, for Republicans in Congress to hold the line right now and, and say, as some reports this morning are indicating that, that they are, that, sec- that um, Leader McCarthy is, is saying is that, We've got to have these provisions. We've got to have these strong immigration provisions in the continuing resolution to fund the government. Yeah. Um, so what is, I mean, obviously we did pass H.R. 2 on the House side, but it hasn't been taken up on the Senate side. Is there any, you know, movement on the Senate side on this? That's another great question because, you know, this this doesn't have to be a uh, uh, continuing resolution, uh, you know, shutdown fight. Um, the Senate just needs to pick up the bill and, and vote on it and pass it. But it has not yet been introduced. So this you can't blame any one person in the Senate. You can blame the entire Senate because it just takes one senator to introduce it. And then, of course, you know, ultimately... Schumer, um, Chuck Schumer is going to have to be responsible to bring it to the floor, but it all starts with somebody introducing it. So we're hoping to see somebody introduce that bill in the Senate and and really fight for it and say, look, this is this is our responsibility here. Um, it's not enough to say 
that the administration is doing uh, is doing a bad job or has done a bad job. You've got to provide the solution, and this is a solution that is on the table. It passed the House of Representatives, and now it is in the Senate's court. So we really need uh, some leadership there. In the, on yeah, the I mean, side. and I'll just, you know, hey, pass it, make some changes in it, and then go to conference committee. You know, I, we haven't done that in so long. It's like both houses are so afraid to go to the table and try to, we might not get everything we want, but sitting around and keeping a system that's broken and doesn't work doesn't help anybody either. I mean, it's so funny. I worked in the Senate for about five years and got to see how the sausage was made. And we Mm -hmm. had a briefing, uh, and it's as bad as you think, Jeremy. It really is. We had a briefing (laughs) from INS at the time and um, ICE, I guess is what they were at the time. And they spent their entire briefing talking about fiancé visas. And I raised my hand and I said, I cannot believe the fiancé visas is the biggest problem that we have. In immigration, I knew, you know, it was a rhetorical question, okay, because I knew the answer to it. And they told me I needed to talk to the legislative liaison. Okay, so they come and they brief a Senate office for four hours. We we were a new senator, newly elected senator, on fiancé visas and not any of the other problems that we're dealing with. This is what the problem is. Nobody wants to look in the mirror, Jeremy, and tell the truth about what's happening. Well, it comes down to leadership, right? As, uh, as you say, the, the sausage is, there's a lot of bureaucracy involved and you can get a lot of noise. And I think there's always a danger here where you're, you're, you're playing a it's political theater, right? And this is why it's really important to stress over and over again, as you did, that there, there are solutions that are available to us, but they need champions. They, they absolutely need champions. And this is where we as, as voters, you know, have a responsibility as well. We have to hold, we have to hold people to account. It's not, it's not enough to have a good sound bite. It's, uh, you actually need to vote. And, um, and I think that's the other thing. It's not just about coming to the table and, and conference. It's also just put people on record. Are you, are you going to put yourself on record as supporting these solutions or are you going to vote no on them? Um, we need to hold our members of Congress or the people that we send to Washington to represent us, we need to hold them to account. And when they come back home and have their town hall meetings, we need to ask them about this moment, this Congress, this 118th Congress had and has an opportunity to address this. Uh, We're going to see if they're going to do it or not. Jeremy Beck from Numbers USA. If people want to know more, how can they find out? NumbersUSA.com and at NumbersUSA on Twitter X. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. And Niall Stanage is joining me right now. He's the White House columnist for The Hill. Uh, he has a column that comes out frequently called The Memo that focuses on the Biden White House. You can see him on News Nation, which is where I like to watch him. And uh, he's with us right now. He's originally from Belfast, Northern Ireland. And welcome back to the program, Niall. How are you? I'm good. It's great to be back with you, Martha. So how does a guy from Belfast, Northern Ireland, end up covering American politics for the Hill? (laughs) And it's a pretty long story, as you might expect. To make it as short as possible, I first came here as the correspondent for an Irish newspaper to cover the 2004 
presidential election, um, President Bush against then-Senator Kerry. And life takes its course uh, beyond that. And I started working for the Hill in 2011, I believe, and have been there ever since. Absolutely. Well, we're glad you are because we need that kind of perspective because... You know, it's all all politics is local, you know, and it really doesn't matter where you're from. So you have to figure it all out. So when we first booked this interview, we wanted to talk a little bit about Nikki Haley and what's going on with her trajectory. And uh, she does seem to be getting some momentum. um, But is it going to be enough? And obviously not a vote has been cast, so we don't know. Yes, that's right. I mean, it does seem like Nikki Haley has got some momentum out of the first debate. Now, of course, former President Trump didn't participate in that debate, uh, and that left the other candidates kind of scrapping among themselves. There has been some sign that Nikki Haley has risen in polls since that debate. Uh, She is obviously the only woman in the field, and she has got a bit of a boost in fundraising in the aftermath of the debate. In saying all that, as you well know, Martha, it's not as if she's polling at some level that is posing a credible danger to President Trump as yet at all, uh, former President Trump, I should say. She's around about 9 or 10%, and he's approximately around 50%, so he's well clear. What I loved about her debate performance, and obviously I'm not your normal debate watcher, I get that, but I am sort of that exurban woman that voted Mm -hmm. for Donald Trump twice and now am looking for someone else. So in that respect, I I think I fit in the shoes of a lot of people that are looking right now. And what I loved about it is she she was reasonable in how she talked about difficult issues. She was indeed she gave detailed answers and she put blame on both sides where it deserved. Now, it was a little more of a general election argument. So I don't know how much it helps her in a primary, but I personally liked that about her performance. Yeah, and I think there are certainly some Republican voters who share that liking for it. It's interesting you make the point about a general election argument because, of course, one of the interesting facts in recent polling was that there was a a poll done testing various Republican candidates against President Biden in a hypothetical matchup. Nikki Haley did better than anyone else, uh, defeating Biden in that hypothetical by six points, whereas everyone else was within the margin of error, one or two points either way. And I think that illustrates the point that you just made on topics like abortion uh, and other topics as well. I think that Nikki Haley clearly has a capacity to expand the Republican tent to some degree. And as, you know, since she herself is a essentially a suburban woman who happens to have been a former United Nations ambassador and a former governor of South Carolina. She's very well positioned to speak to a a demographic with which the Republican Party has had some difficulty recently. And she was was actually in Atlanta yesterday speaking to a group of women uh, from that kind of background. And were you there? Did you hear anything about that, or were you there? Did you hear? No, I went? didn't get to go. There, no press was allowed, so it was a it was more mm-hmm. of a fundraising event. But it was still suburban women that are working for her, you know, to try to get her elected. So it'll be interesting. Sure. Would you? Yeah, go ahead. No, um, and then she's also the one that's couching. Don't just think about me against Joe Biden. You need to think about me against Kamala Harris. And you wrote about Kamala Harris this week also about the real challenges and questions there are around her and her vice presidency. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, Vice President Harris has a number of political challenges, uh, not least the fact that her approval ratings are about the same as President Biden's, and not good in either respect. Uh, there are also a number of other issues regarding the vice president in particular. Um, you know, one of the, there are certain um, political assets that she has, but she is also a very inviting target for Republicans and for other critics from a more sort of centrist position. She is trying to lead the Democratic charge on uh, abortion rights, reproductive rights, whatever your preferred ter- terminology may be. But she is someone whom I think people like Nikki Haley and other Republicans say, well, how would voters feel about a President Harris rather than a Vice President Harris? And polling seems to indicate voters don't feel good about that, which is why she is such an inviting target for Republicans. In the voting group that she was supposed to have the most impact on African-American voters, she has a lot of problems with African-American voters. Um, mm. And it's it's very interesting because I have a person that co-hosts with me on uh, Thursdays that's an African-American pastor. And, um, you know, he we've gone to the barbershop a few times to kind of talk politics. And he goes there mm. on a regular basis. And um, among especially people of faith, African-Americans of faith, they mm. kind of feel like she has identified as being African-American for her own resources and not necessarily um, because she understands the issues. At least that's what I've heard. Yeah, I mean, I think there is some anecdotal evidence uh, to that effect. I mean, I, I, I don't want to build too much around sort of personal experiences of mine, but I remember being in um, black churches or, or, or public schools with predominantly uh, black student populations during the Obama presidency. And one would often see photos of both President Obama and Michelle Obama uh, on the walls. Um, I, I, In my limited experience, I have not seen anything similar uh, to that with Vice President Harris. Now, her background, I mean, her, her mother was uh, born in India. Her father was born in Jamaica. It is a, a kind of more... Uh, exotic background, I suppose, than what we think of as the archetypal African-American story. But nevertheless, it's interesting that she doesn't appear to have quite the same um, magnetism, even though, of course, she is the first uh, non-white person to serve as vice president. Yeah, it's funny. I was in Ireland in April, and there's a uh, a, uh, a gas station on one of the highways that has an Obama museum, which is really kind of interesting. So there's a statue yeah. of of him and Michelle in front of this gas station. It's a very nice gas station. Don't get me wrong. But I, I was thinking, I don't think that's exactly what President Obama was shooting for when he was searching for his Irish roots. But but, but, there was, but it was very interesting. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that's Barack Obama Plaza, which I have yes. never been to on my returns to Ireland, but it's not a particularly glamorous <laughs> site, I don't no, think. No, it's not. There we go. Now, that brings us to what happened yesterday. I mean, you were busy yesterday, that's for sure. Um, uh, Speaker McCarthy talked about the impeachment inquiry or started the impeachment inquiry. I mean, clearly in the background, what's going on is keeping the the caucus together as they go into this um, this government shutdown debate, as well as, you know, there is more and more evidence that at the very least the president changed a story about what his relationship is with his son, but there could be more than that. 
There could. I mean, it is an interesting moment to be in because this inquiry has been launched in the hope of uncovering more evidence than already exists. We do see uh, Republicans, particularly in the Senate, but some more moderate Republicans in the House, expressing misgivings about impeachment or even an impeachment inquiry based upon the evidence that is currently available. So what we know right now, at least it seems to me, you may have a different perspective, but certainly Hunter Biden's dealings on the business level are uh, shady at a very minimum, uh, not just the things that were part of his plea deal that collapsed, but the whole 50 grand from a month from Burisma. It obviously raises questions. Now, no direct evidence that I have seen uh, suggests that President Biden uh, financially gained from any of those dealings. That is what Republicans are inquiring to see if they can find. Obviously, it would be a game changer if they did so. If they don't, I think they are headed to rather tricky waters because either you would have to press ahead with full-on impeachment, which Republicans who represent districts carried by President Biden would be worried about, or you fold your tent, which would uh, greatly infuriate some grassroots supporters of the party and the more fervent uh, members on Capitol Hill, the Congressman Gates, Congresswoman Taylor Greens of the world. You know, and yesterday, um, Senator Dick Durbin, you know, very hardline Republican, I mean, Democrat, uh, was on with Jake Tapper on CNN and you know, Jake Tapper asked him about, you know, these relationships. And he actually, of course, giving the nod to, well, yeah, I'm concerned about uh, relationships of presidents with their children, just like Jared Kushner. Of course, he had to do the nod to the Trump side of it. But he did say, I think there's a problem with how family members benefit from the relationships that they might have with their elected official parents. And of course, Mm -hmm. gosh, from the beginning of the time, Niall, parents help their kids get jobs. Some people Mm -hmm. are in low-level jobs and they help them get a job at the factory or whatever. Or some people are president of the United States and they help their Mm -hmm. kids get a good job. But where are the boundaries? And I do think there has been this sort of attitude of, well, everybody does it, so Mm. it's not hurting anybody. Uh, And on both Mm -hmm. sides, I think there has been, Um, because I can name off a number of senators and people like that whose kids have had really good jobs when they when they Mm -hmm. get out of there. So I don't think that part of it's unusual, but it Mm -hmm. is. I, I just wish he'd be more like John McCain. Where when John McCain was questioned about the savings and loan um, pre-2000 election, he just dumped every piece of paper he had about it on the press Mm. and was totally transparent because he had nothing to hide. If you got nothing to Mm -hmm. hide, you should fully cooperate. Yes, I I mean, you should. I think that the the Democratic argument would obviously be that there has already been, I believe, nine months of investigation and they feel that. that investigation has already been given many thousands of pages bank records and all the rest of it to the point about hunter biden i mean i i do agree with your point about family members of elected officials that has always been a fraught area um you know the fact of the matter is hunter biden as i mentioned a few minutes ago was getting paid this significant sum of money by burisma uh, having no expertise that is apparent to anybody in the field of gas exploration or Eastern Europe or anything like it. 
Now, I, I don't know about you, Martha, certainly no one has ever given me $50,000 a month <laughs> for something that I had no expertise in. <laughs> there, therefore, it stands to reason that he is trading off the family name or was trading off the family name. That is not in itself a crime. I mean, it is morally sketchy, clearly, but it is not in itself a crime. It brings back to mind that whole uh, saying that it's not, you can correct me if I have this right or wrong, it's not what is illegal that is the scandal, it's what's legal that's the scandal, yeah. or something to that effect. Yes, it's, so I, you know, I understand what you're saying, and it's absolutely true, and um, and I think that transparency, and I know I'm a little bit Pollyanna about this, and I'll, I'll admit, because mm-hmm. I think people should do the right thing, even if it hurts them, because mm-hmm. it's the right thing. That's just the kind mm-hmm. of person I am. Um, but mm-hmm. I understand that in politics, that doesn't always happen. Niall Stanage, mm-hmm. it's so great to talk to you, and you can go to the memo, you can find him on the Hill, and you can see him on News Nation. Thank you for being with me today. Always a pleasure, Martha. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining me right now is my good friend, Craig Camuso. Craig, welcome. Good morning. Thank you and for having your, me. your real life, you work for CSX. That's right. And um, that is a large railroad company. Yes. And first, I wanted you to tell people about CSX. Then I want to talk a little bit about supply chains because I don't think we fixed it. You know, we had a lot of problems at the beginning of COVID, but I think we still have. I want to talk a little bit about that. But tell folks about CSX first. Sure. Well, again, thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here with my good friend. Um, CSX, we're the largest Class 1 railroad east of the Mississippi. If you think of a line that runs from New Orleans up to Memphis, Chicago, Detroit, east, we operate pretty much in every every state there. And Georgia have about 2,600 miles of track. Uh, 1,700 of that would be considered mainline track, basically your I-85 and I-75 of the railroad. Us, along with Norfolk Southern, uh, serve uh, pretty much every corner of Georgia, from Dalton to Savannah, from Columbus to Augusta. Um, it's a uh, it's a big industry. It's continuing to grow. And uh, we see, um, especially as the port of Savannah continues to grow, we're going to grow with that as well. And ironically, it's clean. I mean, it's an yeah. old way of of traveling. I mean, trains right. have been around, you know, for a very long time, but it's clean. That's right. As a matter of fact, uh, you can talk about how old it is. If, you, if you've ever played Monopoly and have owned the uh, B&O Railroad, which is on the Monopoly board, that uh, the, the remnants of that, uh, which is called the Baltimore, Ohio, are still part of CSX today. So it has. It's been around forever. But you're right. I mean, when we look at... Um, how to transport goods, especially in a state that is growing like Georgia. Um, it's more environmentally friendly. Um, it helps to take trucks off the road. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, every uh, for every rail car, that's three trucks. That, that, that's how much that can carry. So it's a big uh, part of the, uh, the freight uh, and logistics part of the state of Georgia. So, of course, everyone knows a few months ago there was a terrible train derailment in East Palestine, um, Ohio. And, um, you know, that was a different rail line, but still in your world of business. So what do you know about that and what should people know about that and what needs to be done? Yeah, well, the the first thing is that railroad moving freight by rail still the safest mode of transportation. 
I mean, over 99% of all uh, shipments that are moved by uh, – that are chemical shipments arrive to their destination safely. And you want those uh, chemicals that are moved, you want them on the railroad as opposed to, 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 the, on the, to road. the highway. Exactly. Yes. Um, what what happened in, in East Palestine was was significantly what was very unfortunate. Um, every, with every incident like that, the railroad, no matter what, it's CSX Norfolk Southern, a, a short line railroad, they take what they can learn from that. How do we make it better? And there have been um, studies that have shown since that uh, since that derailment, what can be made better? How can we continue to make the railroad? safe how can we make it safer safety really starts and ends with every conversation that you have in the railroad and um, with that we'll we'll look at uh, wayside detectors which really will go into determine um, when you're running steel on steel what what is the heat that's associated with with that and if it gets above a certain temperature then the the railroad does shut down so we'll look at how how we can make those better how do we increase those um, what we are you know, up against right now is you've got a, a, a bill that's in pending in D.C., uh, the Rail Safety Act that was introduced by uh, Senator Vance and Senator Fetterman that uh, wants to, to look at ways to re-regulate the rail industry. Um, we know there, there are changes that uh, can be made, but um, we also don't want to go back to a, a pre-Staggers Act, which was 1980, which deregulated the railroad industry and really kept it alive and uh, kept it being able to be the, uh, the, the industry that it is today. Yeah, and I do think that at the time, of course, they had to make a choice between two bad choices once the derailment happened. I mean, there was leave the car alone and the heat was building up and it could have exploded and that would have been terrible. But then what they had to do wasn't great either. They had two bad decisions, you know, bad choices to make. But it seems like everybody was involved. And I guess Norfolk Southern has enough money to deal with all of this. It appears that they do. In addition to what the federal government's going to do? Sure. I mean, one thing that Norfolk Southern is doing, I don't, don't certainly want, don't want to speak for them, but I can tell you I know what they're doing from a public standpoint is they're continuing to stay involved in that community. Yes. They're not going to go away. Right. <clears throat> they're going to make everything, they're going to make it right. And that's going to take some time. I mean, it's been, well, I guess, eight months. You know, one thing about uh, railroading is, you know, th- any manufacturing facility, when they have an incident, um, it's, it's, con- it's confined to where they are. It's confined to that factory. When the railroad has an incident, we do it in front of God and everyone. Yes. So obviously you were able to see a lot of footage of, of the cleanup, a lot of footage of, of what they did, all aimed at making sure that we were that they were protecting the public. And and I, I have confidence that uh, Norfolk Southern will continue to do what they need to do to make things right up in East Palestine. So let's talk a little bit about supply chain. Um it does still seem to me that there's some issues with mm-hmm. getting goods from one place to another. And we we had a lot of that that was created kind of in this COVID world that we were living in that made things more difficult. Uh, but we're now a couple of years out from there. So are there still problems with supply chain? Am I right about that? And are there things we need to work about, work on? Yeah, you know, we it was interesting because when you had the pandemic occur, you um <clears throat> the railroad was was considered relevant and essential so we continued to operate so that we could continue to serve people but certainly things went down quick 
the recovery was like a V-shape. So it went down real quick and it came up real quick. And I think that took a lot of suppliers, a lot of shippers, and the railroad a little bit by surprise. And one of the big issues there was labor. Uh, the labor was was not there to, to come back. I mean, we're still trying to figure out where the labor went. Um, we are in a very aggressive hiring mode, um, the entire rail industry. And that's one of the biggest issues from a freight and logistics standpoint is where are we going to continue to get the labor that's needed to move these goods? And that's not just for the railroad industry, but it's for the trucking industry. It's uh, for other modes are having that problem. So that's one of the what's one of the big issues. Well, and one of the things I do, you know, in my other world is that I am a member of the State Board of Education. And uh, that's one of the things we've added to our CTAE programs is a supply chain and railroad and trucking kind of way for people to understand that there are a lot of industries and there are a lot of jobs in that area. And, you know, I think that that there's a big shift going on of re-educating our kids as to where, I mean, you and I are big University of Georgia Bulldogs and we love the fact that we we went there, but there are so many jobs, six-figure jobs that are out there for people that just have a specific kind of training out of high school or maybe in high school where they could step right into a job that would be pretty good. You are 100% right. And um, I'm not even sure we've discussed this, but I, I chaired the industry advisory committee for the CTAE with Miss Barbara I did Wall. not know that, yes. Wonderful. I was the first chair of that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's, you are 100%. They, they are, there are good paying jobs. Railroad, as a matter of fact, about $127,000 a year is an average an average. Uh, wage, so we pay good. We pay good wages. So too do all of these industries that need uh, that need workers. We need welders. We need truck drivers. We need electricians. We need plumbers. We need things that when when I was growing up, it was you know be careful. You know if you don't uh, get good grades, you're going to end up being a plumber. Well. I know a lot of plumbers who make a lot of money right now, (laughs) who own their own companies, who are very talented at what they do. And the technical college system in Georgia, which is which is is one of the prime reasons that Governor Kemp and Governor Deal have been so successful, the Department of Economic Development with bringing uh, new industries into the state is because of the of the technical college system that we have in the state. And it's wonderful that the Department of Education is focusing in on the fact that you maybe don't need that four-year college degree to be successful in life. Going and learning a trade is so important. You know, in the last 40 years, we've been telling men that build, mostly men, women too are in these jobs, but men that build things, make things, fix things, that somehow they're not valuable. And they're mad. They're unhappy. And some of them are leaving that workforce. And we need to re-educate people and we see it you know all over the place that these folks that are building things making things fixing things we need them because the average age is about 62 of people that do that joining me in the studio right now is craig camuso and he is with um csx railroad you're a vice president which i you know in name like a bank vice president it's like a bank vice president (laughs) and um, he is very involved in the supply chain and how that works. And, you know, our friend Butch Miller uh, has Milton Martin Honda. And, you know, you go by Milton Martin Honda and they don't they don't have a full lot of cars. They never have a full lot of cars. It used to be I could get a loaner car from them anytime I wanted to because I've bought eight vehicles from them over the years. And um, now they just don't have them. They don't have them in stock. But when those cars get there, 
with whatever shipments they get. Most of them are sold before they even get there. So there seems to still be a supply issue with cars. There seems to still be a supply issue with other things. Um, Where are we on that? I I think we're getting better, but we're still not there yet. You did. It it got all bunched up um, right after the pandemic. The the recovery was so quick. Um, The railroads, the shippers... We weren't we weren't ready for it. We really were not ready for it. We talked a little bit in the in the last segment about labor, but we also just had an issue with with still China s- still trying to get get through theirs. Uh, then you had a glut of material come in. We had um, and now things have slowed back down. So it's still not back to normal. There are certain things that that uh, some have such high inventory of of goods that they're not ordering. Then you have others that still are trying to get more um, autos. As an example, um, someone asked uh, us, uh, I guess that was a couple of months ago, I was in a room with about 100 people. And a guy said, "Who has anyone in this room bought a car this year? Not one person raised their hand. Um, so the chip, the chips that go into the manufacturing of the of the cars are still um, slowing that down. Although we do see that starting to come back, but we do see merchandise intermodal, what we call it, starting to slow down. As an example, we had a customer that told us they have three years of inventory now for patio furniture. Back in the day. When we were all stuck at home, we were doing home improvements. Uh, we were looking at our house. What can I get better? I was one of those. I don't know if you were, but I, mean, I was. We redid did some stuff. Yes. Um, you know, we went out and bought things, you know, and you couldn't, you know, you'd order a patio furniture and be a six month wait. Well, now some of those are telling us, well, we've got three years worth of inventory. So they're not ordering like they used to. So things are still kind of up and down. It depends on the, the segment of the market, on whether it's, um, you know, whether it's back to smooth or not, but we still see that coupled with are we in a recession, are we not in a recession, um, but we do see some slowing through through this year, but we see things picking up in 24. So let's get back to that jobs discussion yeah. because I think it's important that people understand that you guys are hiring. There's lots of jobs in railroad. Did you say the average salary is $127,000? So what are these jobs and what kind of training do they require? I'm glad you asked that. Because in Georgia, we're lucky. Um, both CSX and Norfolk Southern train all of their new hires here in the state. If you get hired uh, with the railroad, whether you're out of West Virginia, whether you're out of Chicago, whether you're out of Gainesville, you go to Atlanta to train. Both both CSX and Norfolk Southern have training centers, and we are now wide open. We're running seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We cannot hire enough people. And the reason we have these central training locations is, again, from a safety standpoint. So you come in, you're going to get the, the training, and you're going to hear the same message. We used to have training centers all over our network, but they were getting slightly different messages. So we realized we needed to bring that together, and we brought them to Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta, A, you've got, because of the airport, they're able to get here. Easily. Um, easily. Yeah. There's there's plenty of, of housing or for, for hotels, so they're able to stay here. We contract with a food vendor, and they stay here for about six weeks where they get some pretty intense training. In terms of those jobs, it's it's conductors, it's engineers, it's uh, those that work on the on the road, on the road we call it the road, the tracks, uh, the, those engineers, maintenance of way, uh, welders. We have a one of the biggest certified uh, areas in the state for welding, like we talked about earlier. Those are the jobs that we need and we cannot hire 
quick enough right now to what we see is going to be the continued growing demand in in the industry. What's the role of technology now? How has the rail business changed and how has it changed the jobs that you have? Yeah, there's there's a big thing. So about 10 to 15, I guess 10, 15 years ago, you had a major accident out in California and it was a human factor era in which a in which a conductor literally was looking at his phone and he ran the equivalent of a railroad red light, hit a uh, parked passenger train. And what year was that? This was in the early 2000s. Okay. Early 2000s. And within two weeks, Congress had passed a law mandating that the railroad invest in what's called um, positive train control, PTC. And basically, it operates satellite that operates how the trains run. And you, if and it, the the intention of it was that if a train were to run a red light, or the conductor or the um, engineer were to have a medical emergency, that train would just stop. Again, it, it improves safety. So we um, invested along with the rest of the industry billions with a B, billions of dollars, um, which was an unfunded mandate from Congress to install this technology. Well, we've we're now complete with that, and and that's how our our network operates. If you go, if you go into our dispatching center, it's very much like the air traffic control uh, for, for airplanes. I mean, you've got screens all over the place, and you, we have dispatchers that are using that. So there's a lot of technology that's involved in the railroad, and that has added jobs to what you do. It has, um, it has added jobs in certain sectors. There are also certain areas where, just like with any other industry, you don't need as many um, employees as you do. I mean, you remember back in the days, there was a caboose on the end of the train. Uh, There were six or seven uh, people that were on that train. Well, now the caboose is long gone. You see those now in local in local uh, communities where we've donated cabooses, and you've got two people on the train. You have a conductor and an engineer. So we're getting lots of messages in saying, where do you go to find these jobs? Yeah, People well, are go wanting to, to know. CSX.com. Yes. CSX.com. And that's just like everyone else. Uh, you, you apply online. Um, you could just go, go to CSX.com, fo- follow the uh, prompts there, and you can apply right there. So what I hear from a lot of people, and I asked this question of Chris Clark from the uh, chamber uh, about, um, you know, about the whole applying online thing and how, you know, you and I are dinosaurs. We used to <laughs> apply for something, then we'd follow up by phone so that we looked eager to do it. And now right. you apply online and they tell you don't reach out. Right. Don't do that. But as a person who does hire people from time to time, I want that person that's going to pursue the job. Right. Is that something CSX is talking about? Because what Chris said is a lot of companies are going back to a little more. They still have the online, right. but they're adding more people to kind of do the old fashioned way of filtering people. Right. And we're participating in job fairs. You, you see job fairs all over the place. Um, we will come. Our human resources department will come. There's that one-on-one interaction. Um, a lot of times it's it's knowing someone with that. But they we, we do get a lot of applications, and then we have to sort through those. So we still prefer to, to do it the online way. But um, I would never discourage anyone from reaching out to someone you know at CSX and asking you know for help and kind of making sure that that application gets to the top of the uh, the heap. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really important because you do still need a contact. And a lot of these young people think, well, I just put in the online application. And because I've been rejected a couple of times before, I'm not going to try anymore. And there's a lot of that out there, Craig, where we've got to 
you know, things like what you're doing today with the Rotary Club, things like what we're doing today with this interview, people are hearing this and they're responding. Mm -hmm. You know, they're sending text messages because the world has changed, right? right? Everybody doesn't call, but they're sending text messages saying, how do I apply for this? Do they have jobs in Savannah? Do they have jobs here, there, and everywhere? So where do you have jobs? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I speak to uh, new hires once a quarter and go in and you will see the jobs are, are all over. They're, they're all over our, our network. Um, in Georgia, we, we employ about 2,000 people. Uh, most of those are down in South Georgia where we have one of the largest classification yards in the, on the East Coast in Waycross. So we run an awful lot of trains out of there, about 65 a day. So that's a that's Waycross, that's kind of where that name came from. Exactly. Yeah. You'd be amazed the number of, of towns in Georgia. Um, Union Point, West Point, all came uh, were named because of because of the railroad back in the day. But Waycross is an area. Manchester, which is a small area over in the Lagrange area, we have a, a, a good size yard uh, there. We do have a yard in Atlanta. So, in terms of jobs with the with the railroad, it can be anywhere that we need you. And right now, that that will, could shift from time to time as well. And depending on what your skill level is and yes. all that kind of stuff, yes. yeah. So, I think it's really exciting. Uh, and you know, we are really with my grandchildren, I mean, we were guilty of thinking our kids all needed college education, and they did, and we, and they're all doing great, by the way. Now, my oldest son is in a completely different field than what his schooling was in, and he's doing great. He's a, he does something in the cloud. I have no idea what it is, but he, he moves from job to job uh, with more and more responsibility, right. so he must be doing okay. Yeah. I have a mechanical engineer son. I also, my other son works in a lab at the poultry lab at US, USDA, and uh, my daughter is a wedding planner, and she was an actress. Uh, COVID killed her career because they weren't casting a lot of people in the B-rolls, which right. is kind of what she was doing. And she said, you know what, Mom, I'm tired of getting, now that that's gotten more technological, she said, I get tired of getting these notices at 10 o'clock that they want a video for me for an audition by 8 in the morning. And then you get rejected. So she decided to go into something different. And she's trying to figure out right now how to start her own new business. She's a more of a creative type. So, you know, they're all over the place. But they'll all tell you that they're going to be encouraging their children to maybe not go to college and try to find one of these jobs that's out there in a in a corner of a kind of in that mid-level. Not that you don't need more education for it. You do, right. but you don't necessarily need a four-year degree. I still think there's a value in that sort of liberal arts education mm-hmm. where, you know, everybody has a certain level of knowledge about the world so that you can have a conversation. But you have to balance that, I think, with the kinds of jobs that are out there. Yeah, you're right. I mean, having being able to, to have a specialty is is so important now. <clears throat> um, I'm with the same reason with with my two. You know, with, with, like I said, daughter's going to graduate with her master's, um, but and she's already applying online. And we've we've talked about that because it is a lot different than it was it when is. I was looking for it. Yeah, job. yeah. You'd send out. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a there's an episode of Friends that's kind of funny where you know Rachel's doing like a hundred resumes and then doing cover letters to all these different companies. Yeah. I remember doing that, yeah. getting the little box of resumes and. And envelope, and you're mailing to everybody you can think yep. of trying to find a job. Spent a lot of money on stamps. Back yes, a lot of stamps, <laughs> letters, you know, all that kind of stuff. Okay, if people want to know more about CSX, how can they do that? Well, really, again, you go to the website, you can learn a lot there. Um, certainly happy to, we speak at, uh, at, at organizations, communities um, all over the place, and we're happy to do that. 
Um, we also are very active on social media, as we talked about. You'll see a lot. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Facebook. And we're getting word out there about the benefits of the freight rail industry. And I think it's something that we need to do a better job of. So, I, Martha, greatly appreciate you having me on today. And uh, we look forward to, like I said, growing with the state. Uh, Georgia and Florida are going to exceed the population of New York and New Jersey here any day. And uh, those folks need the exact things that we move. They need automobiles. They need refrigerators. So we see that uh, that the re- the industry is is looking at a renaissance and looking to grow. Absolutely. Who would have thunk it? Right. That's right. Everybody thought railroads were dead. Uh, we'll take. You know what I want to get you back to talk about is um, passenger rail because yes. that's something we could do a lot better here. But we'll have that on a different conversation. Sure, we could talk about that for a while. Sounds please. great. Thank you so much. Thank you. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com, and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.